did you uh, did you not say Joe Burrow? I said Watson. You said Burrow. No. But what about Tampa? Oh, never mind. <laughs> With piano, I actually played piano from third to sixth grade. The best one I did was when I did the whiskey glasses and the. Uh, look at brain. you in the mirror and see what you look like. I'm not the president. Tomorrow dinner we could start till the second season. I'm gonna say this. Don't go there. Don't go there. You gotta feel a win somehow, some way. These are the elections that truly matter the most. Saying this was private property, and it's not. Like the boardwalk in Seaside Heights is public property. And we were like, there's no way. Like they had it in all seriousness. Like, they really love this. You know, the Democrats, they're fighting over this. Look at you in the mirror and see what you look like. Thanks to the Democrats. <laughs> Thanks to the Democrats, <laughs> by the way. Thanks to the Democrats. Do we really want to hear this? Oh. this? He always has a crying teardrop. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Okay. I'm done. Jimmy, you see what you made her, you made her walk out? I don't want to hear it. Left this can't You're yeah. the one that brought him up. That's an example. So, so finish this. I want to make finish this out. Finish this out. This is an idiot. He doesn't Joe even Biden. stand. Hold on, I have a question for you. Yeah. Don't run <laughs> it's down. Political. Don't run down. <laughs> <laughs> That's that why. Those are facts. That Am I correct? You are why correct. Bl why blame? Like you're no, because they're. No matter, I don't have to worry about my feelings to understand that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back on Dougie's Political Hour. Dan Francisco joins us tonight. It is January 15th, 2024. Daniel, how are you doing tonight? What's up, buddy? That was a, uh, a nice, loud, animosity-filled uh, uh, intro. I liked it. Yeah. I don't think we'll have any walkouts tonight. <laughs> if, it, if one of us walks out, the show's over, bro. Oh, yeah, that's right. It'll be <laughs> one of us. So let's get started with you. You're a newly elected mayor of English Town. I was there, your first council meeting. What does that mean to you to be elected in a town like English Town? I'm I'm very proud of, uh, of English Town, man. I'm proud of being a member of the community. And um, it's a place that I grew up two blocks, three blocks away from where I currently live in English Town. English Town is a small borough that is wholly within Manalapan. That's where I grew up. But when I was a kid, I spent a lot of my time like riding my bike and playing in English Town, fishing in the lake, hanging out downtown. My friend's grandfather owned a bunch of the buildings in the downtown. Uh, we used to hang around there and you know mess around all the time. So um, when I decided to start a family with my wife, we left uh, a town in Ocean County that we were in at the time and came back here because my parents were still here in Manalapan and we wanted to be closer to family to you know raise our son. So uh, it, it means a lot to me. And, and, and having moved here like six, seven years ago, I realized that I'm very much fulfilled and happier living in a small town than I am in a large town. And we could extrapolate this into politics and culture, but um, it is <clears throat> very powerful to have a good relationship with the people who are around you, to have a sense of community with the people who are around you. And that prevents people also from acting like bad actors when they know they're accountable for their reputation, right? When everybody knows who you are, 
it's harder to be a jerk to people, right? So being in a place like Englishtown is, is, a, is, is a privilege. It's, it's awesome. So getting to uh, play a role in shaping the future of the town, that's what we're more excited for than anything. Would you consider yourself as a political outsider? Because a lot of people will disagree with some of your issues. Yeah, most many people do uh, disagree. Um, do I consider myself an outsider? Sure. I mean, I'm not conventional in any sense of the word, um, not within the, the party. The parties don't really matter in local politics. You'll uh, learn quickly in New Jersey that most towns have a majority party, and to kind of play in local politics, you have to join it whether you think you agree with their dictums on the national stage doesn't really matter right so if you're a republican and you're in an all democrat town you know all council people a mayor all democrats if you want to get elected you're probably going to have to become a democrat and fight in the primary that's kind of the only way to really do it um so you'll realize that party doesn't really matter because right partisan you know what does party really mean it doesn't mean much um, you and I talked two years ago, I think, when I was on with you, that there's subtly like little difference that both parties will seek uh, government you know, tyranny, will seek uh, uh, giving up their civil rights to the state in different ways. So it doesn't really matter. What matters is, you know, are you doing the right thing to empower the sovereignty of the individual, right? Are you fighting for the individual or are you increasing the scope and power of the state? And that's the real uh, question, you know, that's the real paradigm. I think if you're always thinking about the individual and how you're empowering individual sovereignty, then you're probably on the right side of the discussion, the right side of history. Um, but with 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 municipal government, man, like town like English Town, you're just trying to build it up, right? It's a sleepy, it's a sleepy town that's within a very large suburban, wealthy suburban town in Monmouth County. Um, that's surrounded by many other wealthy towns. And English Town, I think, lags a little bit behind those towns economically, uh, but it used to be the cultural center of the entire region. Um, English Town was founded in 1688, right? So it predates our, 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 our country, you know, the existence of our nation by almost 100 years. Yeah. And uh, it was the economic center of this region uh, even 100 years ago, uh, not, not even 60 years ago. Um, we had one of the first four dealers in America in English town in our downtown. We had a sort of self-serving community with tailors and blacksmiths. We had farmers. We had grocery stores. The famous Village Inn, which is like one of the, uh, the one of the namesakes of our downtown, one of the most famous historical buildings, where the Continental Army stayed during the Battle of Monmouth. They used to get like fresh seafood brought in every morning on a horse-drawn carriage from Seabright, New Jersey. Right, and that's far, man. Even just by car, that's like a half hour, forty minutes away. But every morning at the Village Inn, it was a known thing that you got fresh caught seafood right so uh, we were a we were the the place to be in, in this in this region of new jersey we were kind of the center of the path between new york and philly so weary travelers would stop here and literally the birthplace of our nation and in the revolutionary war like we we contributed a verse to that poem of our nation's history so english town's a really cool town i'm proud to be from there i love my neighbors i love that i'm bringing up our you know raising a family here and it's just very exciting so back to the parties why do you think there's some people that are still loyal to their parties on the municipal level or in general yeah. i mean you could even go at the general level too i mean look you have a coin flip chance of you getting to be loyal to your party at the at the local level right so uh again it, it frankly does not matter if you go to any township not not just the borough of english town you go to freehold manalapan monroe all the towns around here if you go to a council meeting or municipal meeting 
you'll see that they're like not debating about the type of things that you see being discussed on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. Um, the partisanship doesn't really matter. In fact, there are many towns, some in Monmouth County uh, along the shore, who have banned partisan elections and they have neutral elections where the name of the individual goes on the ballot and there's no party assigned to them. You have to actually think about the individual and their positions and decide that you like what they say. Um, so I, I don't think that it necessarily matters. Um, you'll notice even in towns like Marlboro, they had like partisan elections where they say someone's in one party and they don't really care. They just kind of people just switch around to parties because they know I have to be in this majority party in order to have a chance. Um, it's not really relevant. It doesn't really have much of an impact. It may have an impact in the sense that the county committee or the county uh, party chair may want to exert certain influences in your election if your town is pivotal for some reason to their ends. But in a place like Englishtown, the beauty is that the county can't really exert much influence on us. Um, you know, our elections, our primaries can be decided by a few dozen votes. Uh, and that's just that's just groundwork, right? That's just like uh, hustle, right? That's kind of just knowing your neighbors and being able to knock on doors and make relationships with people and have an impact. Um, that can't be overturned by an endorsement of a party line where in a place like Manalapan or Freehold, which are large townships, the county apparatus, if it's a majority Republican county, uh, majority Republican town, they absolutely can exert a lot of undue influence on the local election. So English Town's kind of a renegade in that fact, which is historically kind of poetic. And I think it's uh, a perfect breeding ground for us to really change things up, build up our downtown, and try to build a culture of liberty. So we met in the, during the 2020 election at the flag drop in East Brunswick. Yeah. You know, I was by the Trump flags, and then you had the, the BLM on the other side. So is that where your interest really is that where your interest really started in politics? Just trying to find uh, find what everyone else was thinking or did you have a desire before before the 2016 2020 elections? So I <clears throat> I've told kind of my political baptism. It's kind of unorthodox. I've told it many times like when giving speeches, but I sort of did the reverse that most people do. Most people get into it because they want to be in the political or the retail political sphere. They want to go into the partisan sphere and like either help out with elections, you know, jump into a race of some low position in local politics. I was the exact opposite. So when I was 18, I went to Rutgers uh, and on my first week on campus, I came across some kids that were doing some sort of renegade behavior, right? They were going around recording. This is in 2004, right? So this is predates like Facebook wasn't a thing. YouTube was barely a thing. Like there wasn't really social networks. Um, this was before all of that, right? And there, even smartphones, like not every, we all had flip phones, right? There were, the iPhone came out in like 2007. So it predates the sort of web culture that we have now. Um, I saw a bunch of activist kids uh, going around and filming uh, staff, uh, professors, deans, and like poking at them with sarcastic sort of awards and uh, sarcastic videos, uh, kind of going after them for inherent hypocrisies. And at that time, I was apolitical, right? I was politically agnostic. I did not care about politics when I was 17, 18. I didn't understand politics. I knew nothing about it. I all in high school, I just cared about sports and having fun. And then I got to Rutgers thinking, oh, I'm gonna have a great time. College is this, you know, four year party. And I saw these kids doing this and I was in like, it was intoxicating to me. I loved it, even though I didn't understand 
understand it completely. And that was the year that Bush ran against John Kerry, right? That was the presidential uh, election in 2004. Yeah, so the campus was like, when you're on like a big college campus during an election year for a presidential election, there is like a big buzz. There's lots of events. All the student groups are doing things. There's like activists that come and do speeches on campus. There's protests. There's fights, all this kind of crazy drama. And it's intoxicating when you're 18. It's like drama and you're, you're hooked into it, right? So I saw these kids doing these videos and I joined them and I, I, I couldn't articulate their positions on things or why I agreed with them. I just saw what I felt like people that were being bullies, like these kind of progressives, very, very like far left progressive types that, you know, are the staple on college campuses that are pretty much most of the faculty. Uh, and I thought it was cool that like this minority group, these quote unquote conservative kids, which I don't really call myself a conservative now, but at that time, you know, being a conservative on a college campus was a renegade thing. And we got made fun of, we got spit on, we had our homes uh, published on the One People's Project website and people were told and threatened us, like told to go mess with our families. Like I felt like I was part of this renegade group. I was like the rage against the machine culturally for the right, you know, in a way. And I thought at that point, you know, that was like more my political awakening that I was just like neocon, right? Cause I was, this is in the wake of 9-11, right? You're three years after out from 9-11, you have the war in Iraq and you know, all of the sort of neo, the neocons kind of ran the Republican party at the time. And this was like my awakening. I thought this was my identity. And that's where I met the people who started Project Veritas, right? So I, that was my sort of baptism into politics was investigating the people who commit fraud, who who self deal, who who engage in wasteful spending or wasteful behavior. Um, and I ended up uh, working for Project Veritas and being their executive director for two years when I left school. So that was my baptism into politics, not in elections, not in trying to be a mayor or a councilman or a state senator or anything. I was investigating the senators. I was investigating the mayors. We one of our pinnacle. Uh, one of our pinnacle investigations was into the Obamacare Navigator program back in 2013. This was when Obama had the, the Navigator program where he had like billions of dollars set aside for all these nonprofits. And at that time, do you, do you know the guy Lawrence Jones that's on Fox News? I might have heard of him. I've probably seen him around. Yeah, he's a young guy. He has one of the nighttime shows. He like I think he has Hannity's hour now or one of those hours. He he uh, he actually I actually hired him for the investigation into Obamacare at Project Veritas. He was from Dallas and he went in and investigated a uh, navigator uh, navigator office in Dallas and caught them engaging in deliberate like obvious fraud so they were encouraging the people that were coming in to sign up for you know the what did they call it oh the not the exchanges but um what were those state platforms called for the healthcare plans under obamacare it was an exchange something like that some nomenclature like that and they, this navigator is supposed to guide the applicant and say hey tell us about your weight your smoking status your height your your any kind of illnesses you may have and then they they sort of tailor the plans and show you what kind of plans you can pick from. And they were called like silver, gold, platinum, things like that. So we caught them or rather specifically Lawrence and a couple other activists that we commissioned to go investigate them, caught the navigators illegally telling the applicants to deceitfully lie about their status on these questions. So they would be like, do you smoke? And they would say yes. And they'd be like, actually, don't tell them you smoke because that raises your premium. And they would lie. Um, and then on, who knows? They were probably dealing with non-citizens, like lots of different things like that, fraudulent documents. I'm sure there were lots of other things. But 
when we caught this video and released it, it got on, on the news on major networks, and we got a call from Daryl Issa, who at the time was the chair of a committee in Congress. He was the richest congressman in Congress at the time. He's from like Southern California. He literally called us directly and said, I want you to come to Richmond, Texas, I think right outside Dallas. We're going to hold a congressional field hearing into what you found, and we're going to see if there's any sort of illegal behavior. And I got to go to Texas, and not only did I meet Daryl Issa and uh, who was the, there was another congressman, Peter something, he actually got, he actually quit um, Farenthold, some, Blake Farenthold. I think he quit because he had some, I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but some kind of illegal behavior that he engaged in, he was kicked out of Congress or quit. And then there was another, the other congressman from, uh, from Texas whose name is escaping me right now, but I met all these guys. I have a picture in my office of me standing with all these guys at this congressional hearing. And I, I thought that was pretty cool, man. Like, I'm the kid who didn't know anything about politics. I led this team in choreographing and quarterbacking this investigation. And our work, like a couple of upstart kids in like a basically a garage building, a warehouse building in New York, um, we orchestrated this investigation, got this content put on national media. And the most ranking, one of the most influential members of Congress said that they wanted to investigate the people that we caught. And I got to sit in the front row as all these congressmen and women questioned uh, the content and like decided what they wanted to do with it. Right. So getting a congressional inquiry into your work is pretty it's pretty cool, man. Like it means that the work you're doing is having an impact on culture, right? You are changing culture. The culture is not changing you. So that's how I got into politics, man, was going through that realm. And then uh, later on, you know, further down the years, I kind of had corporate jobs and I moved to English town with my wife before we had our son. And silly thing, I think it was my garbage. I got involved with the town, asked some questions at a meeting, then realized there was an opening. I interviewed i i ran for that opening and lost and then later on there was another opening and i interviewed for it against three or four people and i won and from then on i've had re-elections i've had election campaigns for other people and i've slowly turned the tide and putting in people that i think were better fits for the seats and over the course of so it was 2019 so it's been almost five years over that course of time we flipped literally all the seats and then decided to run for mayor last year uh, deposing a man who had been there for 23 years uh no one had ever run against him i did and i beat him on a four to one scale so it was uh, a fun it was a decisive victory it was great uh and more more than that i'm just very excited at this project that we have in front of us now to actually make this town a better place for the residents that live here so when you're with Blue Star Union, I mean, I've seen it in person. What is the reaction people normally get from you? Like that first impression. Oh, is he a big time Trumpy? Is he alt-right? Is he in the center? What's he going to try and do? Play devil's advocate with me. How do people, what's the impression you think people, you receive from people? So it depends who you talk to and it changes. Um, some people don't know how to pigeonhole me, right? So they'll say, oh, I'm... I'm either those words that you just used are probably appropriate. I'm far right. I'm libertarian. I'm anarchist. I'm whatever. Some people think I'm a Democrat, right? I get called all of these things. Uh, and it's funny seeing them contort themselves. But the biggest thing, if you want to end negative dialogue, and it's something that most politicians don't do, is make yourself available for public dialogue, right? So whenever people are 
bullshitting, talking about something, uh, trying to insinuate innuendo about you or your policies or what may be going on in town. I have one policy I do. I don't argue with people. I don't get upset. If people are saying something on Facebook or in some forum or in a meeting, I go, here's my phone number. We can, you can either call me or meet me anytime, or we can do a public stream just like this, and I will take your questions live, but in front of an audience so everyone gets to see what you ask me and how I respond. And Doug, do you know how many people in the four years have ever taken me up on it? Uh, let's go with zero. Zero, right? If there's shit talking on Facebook with 100 people, I've literally gone into threads with 100 replies where they're speculating about something going on in town. And I go, hey, I'm here. Uh, I'm the guy that was part of the, that the part of the reason that you guys are talking about this X issue. Uh, here's my phone number. I'm available to talk anytime. The conversation ends. So most people don't like confrontation and don't like conflict. They don't actually want an answer. They don't actually want a solution. They are addicted to the notion of like complaining and picking at people and brigading, right? Like getting together with other people to complain about some subject. I don't know if it's like feels good to them or what. I don't know if it's an emotional thing, if it's a behavioral thing, but I realize that it's like they don't even mean it, right? It's like just something subconsciously that they do. And to me, it's like, okay, like sunlight is the best disinfectant. If you seem to have some perceived problem with me or a policy of mine, I am going to be more transparent, right? I'm going to make myself more available to talk. And that, that I think has been a fair policy and a fair like philosophy that I've employed that is open, is honest, and so far it stops anyone from engaging right they, so people can't complain the one thing people cannot say about me they can label me and call me a libertarian a republican a democrat an anarchist a crazy guy extreme whatever they can call me whatever they want the one thing they can't call me is opaque right if they if they want to meet me i'm available if they want to call me i give out a cell phone number that goes right to this phone right where they can call and text me directly not some helper, not some subordinate, not some other person, it goes to me and I will answer it whenever I'm available, I will respond to them. But more, more than anything, I crave this because I want your question, that burning question that you think you're going to embarrass me with or catch me on because I have nothing to hide, right? Like whatever I say in our meetings, whatever I say to people in public, like I sincerely mean, I don't have a deceitful bone in my body to the point where like I'm almost honest to a fault where people get uncomfortable. It's like, is he, does he really mean what he's saying? Yes, I, I do. You know, I, I stand behind the things that I say with conviction, but to the point where they almost think it's like not true. So I put myself out there and if people want to take me up on a conversation, I'm willing to have it publicly. I prefer it to be public so that it's transparent to everyone else. In fact, I have, I'm not going to even still not going to say their name, but a very influential state senator who I've been engaging with, who seemingly is going to have, might be the first person to break the streak and have a conversation with me. So I hope that they end up joining me, but um, dude, you have to just not be afraid, right? And a lot of people are afraid in politics. They're scared of getting embarrassed or that someone's gonna come after them. And people do come after you, right? People do file complaints. People do try to get you arrested. People go to uh, law enforcement and make up stories about you. All of this happens in politics at 110%. It takes a particular kind of person to be willing to handle that, right? And to be able to uh, push through that, to not care, to have faith in yourself, to know that I didn't do anything wrong. 
So therefore, there's nothing wrong with me continuing with what I'm with my work and what I'm doing. And to me, like I said, the best antidote is just this, every time there's a comment, every time there's a an insult or an attack or an innuendo or any kind of insinuation about anything negative or a question of something, I just make myself available. Here, I'm here. Let's talk about it. Let me hear your, frus your frustration. Let me hear what you think I did or I said. And so far, that's led me very well. And um, it's been the best policy. And it takes a certain person to, to challenge it. You know, we could go back to you in the streets, Blue Star Union. You're not allowed to hold a microphone, interview people. But I'll talk on my phone like this, just like that, and <laughs> not not know the difference between pub, private or public property, whereas other people would be like, all right, I'll just leave. I'm not yeah. going to. Most people like would just comply there, right? Especially Republicans. They're like, oh, there's a police officer telling me something. Well, if he said it, it must be true. And if even if it's not true, I have to respect him. Okay, well, what if that police officer told you to take your clothes off in public on the boardwalk? Would you just do it? Because, well, the police officer told me to do it, so it must be true. I must have to do it. I can't disrespect him, right? Now, obviously, that's hyperbolic, right? That's extreme. But at the principle, the underlying principle is, is correct. It's, it, it's valid. Just because they tell you to do something doesn't mean you have to, and they're allowed to lie to you. And that incident that you're referring to in, in Seaside Heights, I got a lot of, my, my police chief found out about that video and, and confronted me about it because police you know, departments talk to each other. Uh, and and it's like, I don't know what the issue was. I was on a public boardwalk asserting that I had a right to speak to people publicly and hold a camera, right? And, and you know very well, you're on the Jersey Shore, every teeny bopper girl is recording themselves yeah. on Instagram, right? Like, so the notion that is, and I said it to that guy, that cop in the video, I said, okay, are we going to go around arresting everyone with a phone right now doing this? Because that's what you're saying I'm doing that's illegal. Now, I know what he was referring to. He was referring to like for-profit like like a movie, like the Jersey Shore or yeah. a documentary, like which those, yeah, those types of things, which are a business that want to close down a particular area as a movie set and like have like a captured space for them to record a for-profit thing. That is what statutorily in their code or their local borough ordinances they were referring to needing a permit and that I didn't have that permit, but I wasn't doing that. I was a nonprofit. Asking people questions about, I don't even know what I was asking that guy that day, but wh whatever it was, I can assure you I didn't make any money. The organization didn't make any money. Our YouTube page is not monetized. We barely have any money, probably $50 in our bank account. So this is not some profit venture, and the, the police officer was wrong. And the, 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 the point of that video, which wasn't the reason why I went there, like I didn't go there to start an argument with a police officer. I went there to do my interviews that I always do in all my videos, and this police officer saw this. There was a guy who was like mentally, I don't know if he was mentally challenged under the influence of some kind of drugs or something. But there was a guy in the video. There's two guys. The one that's talking to me and then a guy that kind of comes and talks to us. That guy had something going on with him. And all of the cops that were there that talked to us after were watching us talk to that guy like 10 feet away. And they allowed us to talk to him and him to talk to us on camera for like 
I want to say it was 10 or 15 minutes. And then only when the kind of kooky guy walked away did the cops come and tell us we had to stop. So there was an irony that like, why didn't you stop us when the crazy guy was here? Right, because maybe they knew him, they didn't want to deal with him, right? Why is it only illegal now? Because you literally stood 10 feet away watching us the entire time. So once they did that, my point didn't become any more about like having interviews with random people about political subjects. It became about, let me show you that when this guy is wrong and tells me I have to stop doing constitutionally protected activity, that it's okay to stand up to them and say no and point out their fallacy. Because if more people did that, especially when it comes to something like COVID, right, where they they all come and yep. shut down your businesses, tell you have to wear a mask to go into JCPenney or Target or Walmart, maybe it's healthy that we instill in people the confidence to know their natural rights and their freedom of travel and association and tell them that it's okay to stand up to someone and tell them that they're wrong. So yeah, that was an interesting video. I sadly don't really do too much of the blue star stuff right now because I'm really heavily involved with the stuff in English town and I can't mix those two things as a 501 C three nonprofit government is one thing. So it's a different thing. So, um, admittedly, that's why you're not seeing a lot of blue star content, but I still have the organization maintained in order. All of our stuff filed, you know, everything's legal and operating so that if we ever want to, we can always pop up and do an event sometime in the future. Sounds like a plan because there's a difference between officers or people in government doing it's their job compared to doing what's morally right and i think a lot of people seem to forget about that yeah that was the entire discussion of covid right like if they're uh, following orders or following the law the law does not equal morality right like there's tons of laws that have been law um or been permissible under law that doesn't make it right um you go to a leftist and you can really trigger them in many different ways be like okay well like slavery existed in the country at one point and it was permitted and you know it happened so that means it's okay because it was legal they'll tell you no and they'll say that the abolitionists and the people who try to um uh to traffic uh slaves out of the southern uh states that they were heroes right in fact you learned that in public school so in some sense they teach you they're, they're kind of like snakes with forked tongues right they'll tell you that it's okay to be disobedient against laws when we think the ends justify the means but when we think the, the ends are noble, it is perfectly okay to tyrannize you. So that's the hypocrisy we have to point out, and that's, you know, that's part of the, the cultural battle, man. Especially when I say, I hate to do this, but I have to give you a ticket. I hate to, but I have to because it's my job. Just be like, is there someone holding a gun to your head saying that you have to give me a ticket for my air freshener? I love that line. You don't have to do anything. You want to give me a ticket and you're yeah, couching you it as if it's not your fault, but it is your fault, right? You chose to put on this uniform, swear an oath, and then write tickets for air fresheners and going five miles over the limit. Like you signed up for that. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and then if they say otherwise, well, it's not why I did it. I did it because I want to help people. Okay, well, you're not like you're, you're writing tickets for like telling me you regret that you have to write me a ticket. And I'm not saying yeah. that all people that all officers fall under that paradigm, but many no, of them all. do. Yeah, but but many of them do. And that's the sort of that's the moral crux of this conversation. So one thing I want to know from your point of view is, do you feel like this country is more in between when it comes to, let's say, gun rights? Or do you think more and more people do not want to come out and, and admit 
that they support the Second Amendment? Uh, I think that from a political perspective, so people have philosophical or psychological biases, right? They think things are going in a direction when really they're going in another, right? So um, one of the ways that people get this wrong all the time is like crime. Um, if you were to ask someone who is uh, typically an older person, right? Do you think crime is worse now than it was 50 years ago? What do you think a boomer will tell you, someone who is 75 or 80 years old? Is crime worse now or was it worse when, when they were 20 years old? I feel like it could be worse then. You, you, you'd say it was worse then. All right. What do you think the boomer says, though? Like, forget you. What is the boomer going to say? Oh, they would probably say it's worse now. Right. So they, they have this psych psychological bias. Like, oh, in my day, we used to pay a nickel for a hot dog, right? Not this $5, yeah, right? Yeah, they have yeah. that sort of mentality. They have the same mentality about outcomes, right? So they'll tell you that crime was better in their day than it was now, where anyone worth their salt that can pull up statistics will tell you violent crimes in this country are on a decline, like a steady decline. Uh, it's not zero, but it's declined in the last several decades. Um, same thing with gun rights. Uh, if you were to ask a right wing person, like, who lives in a blue state? Like, what do you think about gun rights? Are things they'll often be very pessimistic. They'll be very negative, and they'll say, "Oh, things suck." Like, there's no hope because Governor Murphy's in power, and we all have we have Democrats everywhere in the state. And it's like, dude, um, you have Kerry now in the state thanks to the Bruin decision, which could not have happened if it wasn't for a groundswell of several other factors in other states, right? And uh, there's 27 states, I believe, now that have constitutional carry, like permitless carry. Uh, no, permitless carry? I think it's permitless carry, not necessarily constitutional carry. So the, the majority of states have permitless carry. We're not one of them. But before, like, the 80s, there were none, right? There's one. I think it was Vermont, Right. So things get progressively better in New Jersey prior to the Bruin decision. And I'm the litigant in federal court in my case where I was trying to fight for the same right, uh, suing the state of New Jersey um, prior to a year ago. You couldn't get well, a year and a half ago. You couldn't get a carry permit. You just simply couldn't. So to say that things are worse now is idiocy. Right. It's it's better now. Like technology is better. The The cost of goods, again, we think about inflation and all this. Try buying like a PC. It just like forget inflation, right? Like for, on top of the fact that there's massive inflation. What was the cost of a run-of-the-mill PC in 1994? And what was the cost of a run-of-the-mill run PC in 2024? You can go to Best Buy and get like a cheap Acer Windows machine for probably 300 bucks, 400 bucks. When you bought like a compact or Hewlett, you know, or a, a a Gateway 2000 in 1995, they were like two thousand dollars, like fifteen hundred dollars, right? And that's with inflation, right? So the cost of goods do go down. Technology, those costs do go down over time. Um, so that 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 is a bias that people have. Well, things are getting worse. Everything's worse. When I was a kid, things were better. Yeah, it felt that way because you were a kid, right? There's an emotional and psychological attachment to that. There's a perception of time when you're young that's, that's, that's skewed by your youthful age. That's why we, as we get older, time seems to go faster. It's, yeah. it's not going faster, but it's because you've been alive for more time. So every year that goes by, the ages of like one to three 
it, it's like you can't really conceive it because the age from 37 to 40 was like a blur, right? Like it, it doesn't matter. But when you were a kid, going from age four to seven felt like eternity. It was like insane, right? Yeah. So psychological. Yeah, psychological bias like influences the way people think. And so things are getting better. Overall, things are better in this country. Um, there are things that are worse, but that doesn't mean that the overall picture isn't better. I mean, I can make the argument back in the day, sports tickets were like a dollar. Now I pay like $50 for the top seat. Yep. And that's, you know, like I said, that's a, that's a luxury, right? So I meant like more of like a staple, like, and that does go, certain things do go up and that's inflation and all that kind of stuff. But like for like the cost of goods, like technological goods, like a computer is objectively cheaper, right? Is it way cheaper as they make more of it? The, the, you know, there's, there's more resources making that good because the technology is expanded and gets better and better and more efficient. The cost goes down. Um, but yeah, it depends on what you're talking about. So I want to, hear your opinion on this because uh, on my prior episodes my friend brought this up to me he said it is the caucus tonight so i want to bring it up he said be careful about vivek vivek <laughs> could be sweet talk but he could end up being like the next barack obama or, or a republican in name only what are your thoughts on vivek ramaswamy you know this is going to sound like a cop-out man and it genuinely isn't I don't follow national stuff whatsoever. I really haven't. I used to more in my younger days. Um, I know who Vivek is, obviously, and I'm, I'm aware of the paradigms of the things he says. Um, I know about his pharmaceutical past and you know the, where people point at hypocrisies there. I also know that he's one to say things that I wish other people with bigger statures would say, like, let's just abolish this federal agency. Um, that's the kind of talk I like. Um, but whether he is a, uh, a farce or uh, a spook in some way or like some kind of trick, I, I, I don't know. I don't really care. Um, I don't really think my salvation lies in any of the people on that stage or on the, either party. That's not how I like kind of rationalize things. Um, I did just see as we were getting online that Trump, I believe, won decidedly, right, uh, uh, in Iowa. Um, and was yeah, Vivek fourth? Is Vivek fourth? Yeah, I think Vivek was four, Haley was second, and DeSantis was third. Like, of all, like Haley is just, like, horrible. I, I, I laugh at all of this, man, because it's like, you still have neocons in the party, which, to me, I think Haley's probably the biggest one. Um, DeSantis, what an odd story for him, man. If you brought this, if you talked about this, like, a year or two ago, and you said, who do you think are the leaders? It was, like, Trump or DeSantis, and a lot of people thought DeSantis because of the way he handled COVID. He seems to have, like, bungled that in, in some wild, wildly flagrant capacity because he doesn't seem to even be a contender at this point. Um, but I, I hate to be like a, uh, to give a cop out, man. I, just, I legit do not pay much attention to national stuff. Um, I think it's depressing. I think it's like also theatrical and like, I think it's like wrestling. It's kind of fake. Uh, it's like, yeah, you know, I'll get, get you. Vibe too. Yeah, it's like you're getting emotional about your tribal leader and you hate the other tribe and then you hate the people within the tribe and this guy, everyone has an Achilles heel, right? It's like kind of like a video game where like you could punch this guy here and you could punch Vivek here because he's a hypocrite about pharmaceuticals. You could punch Trump here because he didn't handle COVID well and he spent billions of dollars and printed a ton of money and had warp speed and was anti-gun and all this other stuff. We talked about this, I think, when we last spoke. Um, and then there's things you could say about Haley being a warmonger and like an apologist for the for state warmongering. Like you could find something about everybody, right? Um, so... 
I don't really have something intelligent to say, man. I don't really follow it that closely. Um, I kind of like go, go through Twitter and be like, oh, okay, this happened. I don't watch TV whatsoever. I watch a lot of YouTube and watch like things on my own time. But I, I also know the things that are told to people on TV are intentionally deceitful in their programming. Like there's a reason why it's called programming. They're trying to program you like to a particular narrative. Yep. So I, I don't really pay much attention to it. But it's interesting that Trump, I know from what I understand, didn't really engage any of the other candidates and seemingly is issue in it, at, at least in this first race so why is the center of the attention go to the mainstream politics uh the house the president the vice president why is there so much little focus compared to the local level mayor governor state yeah, because there's a long answer, a short answer. The short answer is because if you paid more attention to the local jurisdiction, you'd actually like realize hypocrisy of the higher ones, but you also can exert more influence, way more influence. And before the, I believe it was the 17th Amendment, you know, we didn't direct elect senators, right? You, you elected local people, and then the people in the local government, the state government, would elect the senator. So you kind of elected a proxy, and that proxy would elect your senator. You didn't get to vote for Cory Booker. And, and in my opinion, you shouldn't because... The average person doesn't know anything about them and can't comprehend the like the uh, most people I say, right? Of course, some people do, but like most people can't like rationalize the complexity of these decisions and what they do on a daily basis. If you ask people like, who's the Senate pro tempore? Like nobody knows who that is. Most people don't know who that is. Um, but like you, you voted for them. <laughs> you voted for that person in a couple years ago. Um, like there, there's all this kind of stuff that from a status perspective, right? Like I would say the the bad actors that want to, you know, influence us and kind of uh, increase state power and hurt our natural rights. They know it's a benefit if you focus on the national stuff, especially in a place like New Jersey, right? How much influence, Doug, can you have on like a senator, like Cory Booker being dethroned? None. Right, virtually none, right? And even as much as you I want him to that. win, yeah, as much as you want a Republican to win, the odds of that happening are like almost impossible. So uh, it's it's just simply not going to happen. Like it's you can't exert that influence that you think you can. But in my election, you absolutely can, right? Like you absolutely can uh, do it at my level. Um, so I have to actually be accountable because fifty people voting in my local town can change my election. Uh, but 50 people is a drop in the bucket, you know, to hurt Cory Booker. It doesn't do anything. So they want you focusing on that. If you turn on Fox News or CNN, they're not talking about state races. <coughs> Excuse me. Getting over a cold. That's why I sound all funny. Um, but yeah, they're, my they're, ass been out of it, too. Yo, dude, it's uh, terrible. I've been, like, sick for, like, a month straight. But they don't, like, want you focusing on your mayor race or your local representatives or your council people or your county commissioners. Focus on Senate, focus on president. That's why Trump and Obama and Biden are on the TV 24-7 because then you're always looking at the top, right? And you're not, you're not really understanding how anything works. And the people at the top, like, honestly, man, you may not, you may not think it because like, you're, you're, you're inculcated not to think this way, but there really is not much of a difference in your life when a Biden or a Trump or an Obama is in office. There's a difference, but it's not like maniacally different. It's not like, like that crazily different. But someone like 
in your governorship or like your state, your, your state house can have much more of an impact on you. And certainly someone in your local town can have way more of a direct impact on you and you can have more of a direct impact on them. So they want you shying away from that conversation. So before we let you go and we wrap this show up on this snowy Monday night, let's stick with the local level. How can we get more people to wake up and understand it? Would it take someone like me to go out in the streets, do what you kind of do, and you know, interview them, try and wake them up so they could understand that, you know, it really don't matter Trump, Biden, whoever, but it matters who your mayor is, who your governor is, who your local senator is, councilman. <clears throat> Yeah, I think we talked about this last time, too, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't necessarily believe that like voting is a solution, right? I think we've discussed before that like culture is way more important than that. Um, and you can move culture in a lot of interesting ways that I think has way more influence than say who your governor is or who your mayor even is. Like the I think an example I brought up to you before is, hey, I can maybe get a Chris Christie elected to governor, right, in New Jersey. And how much impact did that have on your life? Well, not really. Like, where you're, 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 you're where you are now with Murphy for two terms, right? Is, did it really change your life? No, uh, probably not. However, if you could convince, like, 15% of people in New Jersey to, like, not send their kids to public schools and, and get them to divorce themselves from the government school complex and have them a generation a entire generation, like 15% of kids, which is a substantial minority, thinking outside of the paradigm of state monopolies and like the state telling them how to think, I guarantee you that has way more of an impact on elections and culture in the future than the fact that Chris Christie won an election at some point, right? That, that has way more of a domino effect on a lots of different things, not only on the way they think, but the way they behave. And the way you control those things is by living your life a certain way, right? Like raise a family with a partner that you agree with on morally and intellectually, raise children to bear those morals and those beliefs that you have, and build a community, an insular community around yourself that shares those values and help people, right? To proselytize them and then help them when they need help. That is your vanguard against the state. And if people are doing that in these sort of little pockets around a larger paradigm, around a larger community, say like the county or the state of New Jersey, you'll have way more of an impact in 20 years if you know a quarter of the kids are not being brought up by the state to think like them. That's way more influential than like some Republican or some Democrat got elected once for a four-year term, which just is a pendulum that swings back and forth. And they all kind of do the same things most of the time anyway. So that's my that's why I, I value that stuff a lot more. And even though I know it sounds hypocritical that I did run for office in my local town and I'm trying to help out and build a community here, um, I'm that that this is what I meant at the top of this interview that like. I'm still going to say things that seemingly are disconnecting, but they're not like, I don't believe that's a, your salvation. I don't believe that's your solution, but in my own way, if I know within that power, that power structure, if I can participate in it and in any way help make things better, that's an overall good, right? So even though I may not think that's the best way of doing things, if I think my presence will in some way alleviate someone's pain, alleviate uh, regulatory pain, or you know, increase the business community, or increase people's individual sovereignty by getting rid of stupid rules and local code and regulation. It may seem so trivial to you, right? It may seem trivial to an outsider, but if on a spectrum, I helped make things better, even if it was a little bit, 
right? And so, like, I would say if you had a hundred kids starving in the streets and you only had one loaf of bread to give one of those kids, are you telling me you wouldn't give the one loaf at least to the one kid and have their belly full for one night? You would, right? You'd, you'd extend that good into the universe, even if it's minuscule, even if it's small. You would do it because it's the right thing to do. That's kind of how I rationalize this, right? Anything that is moving the needle towards good or towards what we believe to be philosophically good, I'm going to engage in it, and I'm going to do it in a, in a fair way, in a way that I think makes the world a better place. Yeah, because you're not the one to just stick to the status quo because that's what's been going on for the last hundred of years. You're the one that wants to change it and actually serve people. That's what a public servant is, someone that serves and helps the community. Yeah, man, I tell people all the time, like, I'm, I, I go, I, I say, uh, when businesses come to invest in the town and I'm constantly trying to court capital into the town, that's the other thing. Like, people think, like, oh, you get into office so that you can make rules and restrict people. I, I abolished a bunch of things outright. In fact, I abolished like 150 different things in one bill, in one ordinance, right? Like no one even knows or cares, but I know. I know that I did it, right? It's there. And that's like irrefutable that we did it, amongst other things I had done before. But I view my role as how can I ask for capital to come invest in my community? And then how can I thank them after, right? And show that they're actually driving the change, not me. And I remind the few people the relationships that I've built, the business members that are joining our community and investing in our downtown, I tell them all the time, you're the reason why we're going to change. You're the reason why we're going to be successful. It's not me. And I should be kissing your feet every day, thanking you for choosing English Town. Thank you. Like my line that I always say is, thank you for choosing English Town. I'm internally grateful to you. What can I do to make your stay easier? What can I do to convince you to spend more money here? What can I do to convince your friend or your uncle or your associate to also move here, to also bring a business here, to also bring an interesting organization here? It's my job to facilitate that in any way possible. And usually politics is not like that. Usually it's it's either the answer is outright no, or it's how can I extract value from this person coming here? How can I force someone to bribe me for coming here? That's usually the game. And how can we make this as painful as possible with regulatory schemes and 17 committees and a code enforcement officer and all of these sort of obstacles that prevent people from opening a business? I'm trying to tear all of that down and tell people that if you're willing to risk your capital in our town, I'm going to be the best steward of your money by trying to tear down every single obstacle that could have possibly been, you know, a hindrance in your path. And I think that's the most the, the most optimistic way to look at this and the most uh, gra the most gratitude that I can show. I try to show gratitude to these people because they can go risk their capital anywhere. They can they can go to a town that's way nicer than my town. Like my town is not the nicest town in the county. Like anyone who lives here will tell you it's not the nicest town in the county. They can go to a Red Bank or a Freehold Borough or you know a shore town where there's already an established business community and clientele ready to spend money. So when I convince them that English Town is the place to be and that it's going to be a place to be, I am eternally thankful to them that they came on this journey with us, right? That they partnered with us and became our neighbors. And that's my job, right? That's my job to be a good steward for the community and be a good steward for our new friends and neighbors that are coming in and taking a chance on our town. All right. Thank you, Dan. As always, it's a pleasure. Never thought I'd be speaking to a mayor on my show. But it's Doug, truly an Doug, honor. 
You've been there since the beginning, man. Ever yeah, since we met on Route 18, I, I I appreciated you. That's the beauty of Blue Star, right? I've made so many friends because of that organization. I was so thrilled to see you at the reorganization meeting, man. You've always been there for me every time we have something going on. So that means a lot to me, Doug. Thank you. And I always am happy to come back on your show anytime. Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely set something up within the future. Who knows? Maybe you'll be at a family party and you'll see someone walk out. <laughs> I look forward to it, man. All right, Dan, as always, it's a pleasure. We had Mayor Dan Francisco on tonight's episode. Monday night, a snowy Monday night. Everyone have a great week, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, man.